These podcasts may contain mature subject matter or language. Listener discretion is advised. I will be doing an interview on the question of when do the social factors surrounding the creative and artistic work become acknowledged or overlooked? And for what reasons might this occur? Hello, this Hello, this is Patrick Hampton for Yes, That Does Count As Social Theory, the show where I will be talking about a variety of topics, but I will loop social theory back in somehow. So, sit back and listen to some royalty-free music while the show is about to begin. here with Renee Hampton and can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Renee. I use they them pronouns primarily, but I am gender fluid so it does shift. And I have a BFA in acting. Um, I am currently working in retail, but I do drag on the side and I love to paint, I love to read, I consider myself fairly well educated and well spoken, so I don't know if I'm particularly qualified for this, but I'll uh, give it my, my best shot. I think everyone's qualified for these, not to dismiss the credentials you <laughs> okay. have. Sure. But it's just the question of, like, when do the social factors like race, beliefs, gender, so on and so forth, um, surrounding the creator of an artistic work become acknowledged or overlooked? I think they become acknowledged at a point when the author themselves voices an opinion on something. Like, uh, we don't really know much about J.D. Salinger, who wrote Catcher in the Rye, but um, his work certainly brings up a lot of questions about him as a person, but we don't really have a way to analyze that because we don't know about him as a person. But someone like J.K. Rowling, who has famously made her opinions on many, many things uh, obvious, has sort of caused us to go back and take a look at her work a little bit harder. Um, when she spoke out against transgender people, people sort of started to question the other aspects of her prejudice, like where, where else does her prejudice lie? Um, and of course, we started looking at things like the goblins being an anti-Semitic trope, and we started seeing things like, did Cho Chang really have to be named Cho Chang for us to know she was Asian? Plus the two Patels. And the, and the Patels, yes. Um, they needed to make it very clear that they were Indian for some reason, and uh, they did so in name. <laughs> and uh, it really wasn't necessary, but it, it came to, we, we, we sort of came to see that she had this sort of, this, 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 this fat phobia and this classism um, that in her, in her writing, and we might not have taken a look at that unless she had spoken out about her political views. So I think that the, the... How did you phrase it? Could you repeat the question? Oh, I'm wondering about the social, like, factors around the creator of an artistic work and, like, when are they acknowledged oh, or yeah, okay. overlooked? They're, they're acknowledged at a point when the author makes themselves, or the creator makes themselves, um, clear about their 
true-to-life opinions. Because without a true-to-life opinion, we can only speculate about the intention of the work. Was the intention to satirize or was the intention to uplift a notion? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's a thought that when satire fails, it promotes the thing being satirized. Yes, I remember um, hearing about that, um, particularly during the sort of, I don't want to say resurgence of, of, of sort of um, Black Lives Matter, because they, th that's always been an issue, but there was a sort of a, a, a revival of that um, because of the um, unfortunate tragic situation with George Floyd. Um, during COVID, everyone sort of became more aware of, of the Black Lives Matter, the necessity for Black Lives Matter. And people became a little bit more aware of things that they might not have previously thought of as racist. Like Aunt Jemima is now Pearl Milling Company because it hadn't really occurred to anyone that having a black woman as a a mascot yeah. might be considered racist. Yeah. Um, but it, it took something as horrible as a police officer kneeling on the neck of a black man until he was dead to make everyone kind of take a second look at culturally what is so ingrained. Do you think these culturally ingrained things can change? I mean, we were just talking about how people's views on these things can alter over time, but at the same time you were previously talking about how after a certain point we don't really know what this author is really saying. Well, certain things can be lost to time, but back when Capture in the Rye was written, there we didn't have the internet. And now, with J.K. Rowling, we have the internet, we have the receipts for all of the terrible things she said. <laughs> so we can clock that and have it in writing so we can compare it to um, her work. And if, it, if, if, if something is written in a time where that is not taken down, so literally and with such permanence then it can be hard to prove hard to analyze things but now in the age of the internet when we have things like twitter where which is a 40 and 140 character capsule of someone's beliefs it's it becomes easier to analyze the works they're associated with yeah. But there's also the general idea of catharsis. So even if someone doesn't have Twitter and we don't really know that aspect of them, there's the thought that what if this person is nothing like what they write or create and they're just sort of getting out there well, that's an interesting notion um, because, I mean, it has to come from somewhere. If it's coming from a place of scorn, like if they're saying this is not how society should be, then that may not be clear unless we hear that in an interview. Um, but if they're if they're thinking 
this is the way society should be, this is the way we should think of certain races or classes or types of people, then we may discover that that is their truth in an interview. But if someone is very reclusive, then it becomes difficult to um, take a look at them as a person in relation to their work. And as we have learned in many situations, history is either overly kind to people or not kind at all. So some people, their beliefs have just sort of been, I don't know, ascribed to one thing or another or just overlooked entirely. Well, I think that's, that's sort of interesting because the notion of a reliable narrator is also important to... It's, a, it's sort of a uh, inception style, um, something within something else type of scenario because you have the person and you have their art and then you have a person analyzing the person and their art and you have to think, is the person analyzing the person and their art a reliable narrator? Because they could be uplifting this person or they could be purposefully scorning them. And you have to think about the opinion of that author as well because there is the author unto themselves, and then there is the person who is in charge of the biography of that author and they have their own opinions. And those opinions may change over time like the letters of Martin Luther King from prison or Nelson Mandela from prison. At the time, people thought they were rightly prisoned and this was the way it should be, but later through history people have taken a look at that and realized no these people were civil rights leaders and that does go with what you were saying about who is interpreting the narrative and how do these social mores change exactly so i'm reading a book right now about vincent price written by his daughter um she is a surprisingly objective narrator um, because he was, I'm not going to say he was distant, but he was her father later in his life. And so she didn't see him as much and she didn't really see him as a lot of people would see their father figure. And so she was able to look from an objective standpoint at all of his documents and all of his photos and all of his collection of artwork and kind of step back and say, okay, who was this person really? And you do have to acknowledge the fact that as a biographer, she is his daughter. And so perhaps there is an element of favoritism. Like, um, for example, she talked about how early in his life, living in Missouri, growing up in Missouri, he had a touch of anti-Semitism. But she also noted that, like, directly after she noted in sort of a defensive way that... Um, he later gave that up after he went to Hollywood. He sort of lost that, uh, that, that thought and was eventually awarded a, um, a, a medal for, um, alliance with, um, with, uh, the Jewish people later in his life. Um, so it was, it was almost like a, a defensive stance. Like she wanted to say, yes, it's true that he harbored some anti-Semitism in his youth, but who in Missouri at that time didn't. And later on, he wasn't like that. So it, it could have just been objective, but she 
mentioned it directly after, so that it, it made it seem a little bit like she was defending him. Well, one of the central ideas of sociology is that society is influencing people, and so it may not be possible to make something that doesn't have any kind of belief, and it gets even more complicated when you mix in what the author intended and what the readers intended and what the creators intended, and there's... Every now and then it comes up with reappropriating something and taking something that, like, the author... Like, we know the author had this belief, but kind of overlooking it, if that's the word I'm even looking for, in such a way that it's almost reclaimed. Hmm. That is interesting. Can you think of an example of that for me? I think there was, I forget the name, but some anti-Semitic classical composer. And I think, like, they sort of... That's a lot of them, probably. I mean, yeah, but <laughs> I think there was, like, one in particular one, and, but, like, the Jewish community sort of tried to reappropriate his work, and I feel like even with Harry Potter, they've sort of become, like, this, um, how do I put it, like a sort of queer embracing of it. Well, speaking as someone who is involved in the drag scene, if you were to do a Harry Potter number, you would be booed out of the club because of the, the association with J.K. Rowling and her, her viewpoints and Harry Potter, which is a damn shame because people my age were like the writing, I'm, I'm 25 right now as, as of this is recording, um, and people my age were like the correct age to be reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and then waiting for their Hogwarts letter in the mail. So for us, it's very nostalgic, but for people who are both queer and Harry Potter fans, it's very bittersweet because we've lost something that was a part of our childhood and we don't feel we can connect with it anymore. Daniel Radcliffe famously said this shouldn't allow our stories to be taken away from us, but it is because it is such an important part of who she is as a writer, and she created this universe for us, this rich universe, um, it makes it almost impossible to enjoy because of her association with it. I would love to go to Universal Studios Harry Potter world thing. I would love to buy a wand. I would love to drink butterbeer, but I can't because as a trans, non gender non-conforming person, I feel like I would be betraying my community in an irreparable way. It's like how I recently learned someone I know eats at Chick-fil-A on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, and his best friend is gay. I'm his good friend, and I identify as queer. And yet he knows this, but is for some reason offended when he's called out for it. And I'm not saying it's like a big deal, but to it would be at least a nice gesture as an ally to give it up for the sake of your gay best friend and your queer other friends. Because it's not, it's not a necessity to be a good ally, to stop eating at Chick-fil-A, but knowing you are supporting a company that does not or actively works against the LGBTQ plus community, it would be a nice gesture to and make you a little bit better of an ally to avoid doing that. I know that's a little bit off topic, but um, that's just my opinion. I'm, well, I think there's sort of 
that question of well, I know it's kind of a capitalist viewpoint, but there are a lot of people involved in the process of creating any work, the division of labor and all that. So one could bring up the argument of there are all of these people involved. Is it really fair to go after the head of that? Well, it's interesting because I saw a really interesting video essay on YouTube. I know that's not a great introduction to any information source. But, uh, well, well but I mean, this, YouTube's full of people. But this woman uh, made a really interesting point, and she said, the purpose of copyright is to make sure the author is given due compensation for their work and for their ideas. And the way copyright works in the United States is, for books at least, is the family of the author still has the rights 100 years after the author's death. And after that point, it becomes public domain. So because the whole purpose is to make sure the writer gets proper financial compensation for their work, it could be argued that J.K. Rowling has received that financial compensation many times over, and her work should go to the public domain and belong to the fans again, which is an interesting point. I'm not saying it's the solution, but I, I do think it's a very interesting point. I really don't think there is a clear solution to this whole separating the artist and the art. And like even when thinking of the central question, I was told that I had to define what I meant by separating, yes, you know who you are who told me that. You're <laughs> <laughs> calling, calling them out. Yeah, but I'm not even... I don't know if separating is the right word to use here, but there's definitely that what belongs to the fans, what belongs to the author, what belongs to this. Like, if you were to get a tattoo of something, there isn't a scent that's going to that person, but you are still putting that out. I mean, I know so many people my age, older than my age, who have Deathly Hallows tattoos, and they deeply regret it now. Because they just don't look good. Because of what they have come to symbolize in relation to the author of that work. So even though, of course, all the money went to the artist of the tattoo, it still bears symbolism that is uh, relevant to the beliefs of the author. There... Hmm. Uh, sorry for the gap. <laughs> no, you, you look like you have something on your mind and you're just trying to figure out how to say it. That's fine. Yeah. But... There's this whole thing about, like, prison theater, where, in many ways, a new context was established for... I, I remember you telling me about this, and you telling me that they did the Scottish play, and there were actual murderers in the cast. And I can see how that would give a different perspective in terms of what the fan, uh, lack of a better term, fan, the audience, how they would perceive that. It gives it a different context. Um, 
but I think the author is an unchanging context that sticks with the work no matter what. Like, we still have the same reasons that Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. We still have all those same reasons. And he, he, had, he, had, he had political motivations for writing it because he knew that with King James I being the new ruler in England, that people would be interested in all things Scottish. And he knew with James's writings on witchcraft and the popularity of witch hunting, it would be interesting to have witch characters and he he had a lot of reasons for writing it the way he did and that remains relevant to the history of it and it remains relevant to the reasons behind the creation of it but because that story is so old now it can be reinterpreted in different ways and that makes me wonder if time will pass and harry potter will be viewed differently because it was fairly recent that she came forward with her views on trans people specifically. And it was sort of like <laughs> her, her work was put under a microscope and it was kind of revealed that she had a lot of other issues. Um, <clears throat> but it makes me wonder if in, 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 in what, 400 years, however old Macbeth is, in, in 400 years, if people are still reading Harry Potter, which I think they will be, um, it's just classic and brilliantly written. Um, if people are still reading it in 400 years, if the world hasn't melted, then um, will they view it in the same way that people I, like my age do now? Because I was around when the books were still coming out. And so I have a different perspective than someone 400 years from now because I was there for both when the books came out, of course, and... I was there live with a front row seat at my computer when she came forward and denounced trans women as predators. I think, well, it's impossible to tell how things are going to be interpreted in the future. And that's just sort of the way things are with history and how we look at the past to sort of try to see the way things are going. But I think, uh, to go back to the example you were mentioning earlier with Macbeth, with the character of Lady Macbeth, mm. there's definitely an, a faint air of misogyny to that. Mm. But there's also been sort of readings done probably in more recent years of she's a powerful woman. Well, I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying about reclamation. Um, some things can be reinterpreted and reclaimed, and as I often do, I'm going to bring it back to gender. Um, Shakespeare was originally performed by all men, which makes some of the comedies even more ridiculous with all the gender fuckery and all that. Um, but Shakespeare has, I, I've seen frequently, been cast with gender non-conforming performers, trans performers, and it changes the way the story is perceived, not necessarily in a bad way. And it sort of updates and brings into the present these old, old stories in a way that is sort of like a reclamation. I think part of, I guess, whether something can be reclaimed or not 
comes down to, is the author still making money off of it? Yeah, I guess that goes back to my point about copyright. I kind of, and it's in a, in a way. I mean, arguably Shakespeare was truly never making money off his works because the people who wrote the folios were literally just people sitting in the Globe Theater trying to write down the words as fast as people were saying them and then publish them. Or people who were trying to... Uh, the, the, the point is with Shakespeare is it's it, it was very hard to get your hands on a copy of the play, like a legit copy of the play. And that's why there are different folios with different lines in some cases, and people debate about the accuracy of it, and Shakespeare himself probably never saw a penny of any of those published folios. He probably didn't receive much money even for the performances as a writer, and there's dispute about whether or not he acted in any of his plays either. Hell, there's dispute about whether he wrote any of his plays in the first place. <laughs> or whether that guy is actually Shakespeare, of what I gather. Yeah, there's like, it's a whole thing. And um, it's uh, it's very complicated. But uh, I guess my point is, he was probably never making money off his work. Not good money, anyway. And so that's another thing that time has changed. Because now we have copyright laws. But there were, like, those superstar classical composers who were heavily funded. Yeah, well, they had patrons, um, largely, I think. And the same goes for a lot of painters. Some painters didn't really have any patrons to speak of. Like, Van Gogh is pretty much just penniless and trying to deal with his schizophrenia and, um, by painting. But um, a lot of people had patrons for their art. And that's how they made their dime, is by producing art that would be favorable to their patrons, which is another thing. It's, it's, it comes down to who are you writing for? Are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for a specific audience? Are you writing for a specific person? Like how um, whoever commissioned someone to... <laughs> I mean, the, the best example I can think of for, for commissioning an artist is um, the Vatican. Um, commissioning the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Mm. And um, Michelangelo kind of played around with that in his own fun way, but largely he was doing it for the audience of church officials. And so that deeply affected the way he chose to present his art. And it has affected, in some ways, the way people view the art even today. Hmm. But I think with the Sistine Chapel, it's resonated with people beyond the immediate religious significance. I think you're absolutely right, because some of the images are, have become so iconic that they can be applicable to other things. Like the whole um, God touching the hand of mortal. Um, I, I once saw a, a parodic piece of art where it was... Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror touching the hand of Rocky the creation. <laughs> like it's 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 such an iconic image that it's become applicable to many things. And that's why people can view it in different ways. And I think maybe once again that's something that time has had an effect on. Like in the time it was made, people couldn't really see past this is this is church imagery. But now people can look at it and kind of take it as whatever they want. And there really isn't like a hard and fast point for where can we start acknowledging things? Where can we stop acknowledging 
things? Does copyright have anything to do with the things I just mentioned about mm. where we can stop looking at the author? And there really isn't any clear solution, which is why I'm just asking this question. And I think it's interesting that you're asking all these different people this question because I'm sure everyone has a different opinion on it and I'm sure everyone has different examples and stances. Like, when someone says separating the artist from the art, my first thought always goes to J.K. Rowling because it's impossible in my mind and in the minds of so many people my age. Because a lot of people my age and a lot of people I know are queer. They identify as queer in some capacity. And the notion of some, because, and that's not because it's new and that's not because it's trendy. <laughs> that's just because um, it's easier to come out than it had been in the past. Because there are more supports and more, more a, a wider, broader community of people to get in contact with. And the internet has helped with that. But my point stands, it's hard for people my age who both grew up with it and grew up later on having the knowledge of her belief system in her true life to enjoy it because we're all not all of us obviously but we're all we're all either queer or we know someone who is and it's impossible to not think of the people we love and how they are hurt by something no matter how much we enjoy it but Part of what I was asking with this question is not just about the beliefs of the author, but let's say like the race of the author, or the sexuality of the author. You make an interesting point. I think that J.K. Rowling, um, she was, she lived in poverty for a long time. She she was a struggling author, and so she has her own notions based on her own experience of what poverty is. She depicts the Weasleys as being poorer example, financially poorer examples of wizards. And ginger. And, and ginger. Um, but yeah, there's another thing. There, there's another example of prejudice. By making them ginger and poor and interested in muggles, she is somehow implying that they are... She's trying to make the point that a lot of people would view them as lesser because of that. So she's using tropes like class and even something as stupid as hair color to say, hey, these are the people who are the underdogs. These are the people who are less than in the eyes of the people who are the bad guys. Does that make sense? Yeah, but she's kind of using that, but I don't feel that way. Yeah, she, she, she's, she's, she's using those tropes to the advantage of making her point. And the point is that people who want purity of a race are obviously the bad guys, which is so, which is a great point. <laughs> it's a great point to be making, but um, her her personal stances don't align with that, which is wild to me because it seems like such a loving message in her books. And that's why I think it was surprising to me and so many other people when she outright condemned people for using the bathroom they want to use for fuck's sake. Yeah. 
Um, thank you for talking. Sorry to end that on that, that note. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, it's just, is there anything else you would like to add? And just, like, what reasons, like, why might this occur? Or just any final thoughts? Final thoughts, I guess... There are a lot of things we've chosen to look past in works that are very old now. I hope someday people can read Harry Potter to their children and feel good about it. I there's a there's a girl I went to high school with and she was looking forward to being able to pass on those stories to her youngest daughter, her her young daughter when that daughter came of age to understand the stories. And she was devastated that she didn't feel she could pass those on anymore when the news broke of Miss Rowling's um, feelings. Um, uh, but I think years from now, people might view things in the sense of, like, oh, she was a product of her time. <laughs> because a lot of people will look back at things like silent films and acknowledge the revolutionary aspect of them and even the quality of some of the stories, but they're able to look past certain things because they recognize it as a product of the time. And I think maybe in maybe 50 years, people will be able to look back and say, she was a product of her time. These books have withstood the test of time. These stories have withstood the test of time and we can still enjoy them. Hmm. I mean... Who the fuck isn't a product of their time? <laughs> <laughs> Truly, that's a whole nother podcast that you could do. Yeah, yeah actually, that's a good point. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for having this interview with me. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I was uh, insightful in some capacity. Yes, you were. Thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please spread the word to other people about this podcast, and follow me on Instagram at PatrickHampton100, or Venmo me at, at capital P Patrick-Hampton-17. Until next time, thanks.